Welcome to CMMS Radio, a podcast, blog site, and general resource for all things CMMS from selection to implementation to help you make better choices, learn from industry experts, and have a successful CMMS journey. I'm your host, Greg, and I've spent several years in the CMMS industry, helped lots of clients, and I want to help you when it comes to CMMS, why you need one, and how to get the most ROI and benefit from a CMMS platform. We'll bring in experts along the way to help all of us learn more about CMMS, facilities operations, and the like. If you need help with a CMMS project, send a message at cmmsradio.com. Just use the What's On Your Mind link. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Thanks for tuning in and let's get started. In this episode, we have a special guest to help us learn more about maintenance and reliability specific to assets and preventive maintenance. He's the host of Rooted in Reliability, the plant performance podcast, where he's helping organizations improve the triple bottom line through improved asset management practices. He's a maintenance management professional, a certified maintenance and reliability professional, and certified asset management assessor. I'm excited to welcome James Kovacevic to CMMS Radio. Thanks for joining us, James. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Greg, for having me. That was uh, quite the intro, so I appreciate it. Um, Happy to be here and happy to talk preventative maintenance and all those great things that uh, we got to do in our industry. Excellent. Excellent. And that that's why I wanted to have you on the show. I've consumed some of your materials. You and I had a discussion some weeks ago and talked about some of these things. And I think it's really important for people that are using CMMS solutions or IWMS or anything really, even if they're leaning on their ERP, although this is CMMS radio, it's an important part of any organization. So first off, did I leave anything out that you'd like to share with the audience about your background? No, the only other thing I can add is, you know, I've kind of been in this industry from a wide range of different perspectives. I started off as an electrician, had the opportunity to become a maintenance supervisor, learned about maintenance planning and storerooms and did that for a while and then you know, became a man- maintenance manager and then kind of moved into more of the consulting role over the years. Um, that's about it. So I, you know, I think that brings a good perspective because I understand some of the challenges from the tradespeople people doing the maintenance and some of the other challenges from the managerial standpoint. That's exactly why we're here today. And one of the questions that I had for you that would possibly help our audience understand a little bit better about what you do and all those years of experience, what is a certified asset management assessor? All right. So that is a certification provided by the WPIAM, Rural Partners in Asset Management. And that organization is an organization that was developed as an output of multiple other organizations. So in the US, you have SMRP. In Canada, you have PMAC. Them, along with various others through the globe, came together to form Rural Partners in Asset Management. That goal there is to provide good content to people who are looking to deploy asset management in their organizations. If you go to WP, IAM, they actually have resources there that you can access that are free that help with identifying what do we need for asset management? What are all the competencies for maintenance and so on and so forth? Um, So that being said, CAMA or the CAMA is a certification that allows you to assess against ISO 55000, 
which is the asset management ISO standard. Does that, the fact that you are a certified asset management assessor, does that lead us to the triple bottom line? The reason I asked about that is I was curious, what is the triple bottom line and what makes it so important? Well, the triple bottom line is a way for organizations to look at how they're delivering value, not just to shareholders in terms of financial returns, but also in other aspects. So, you know, obviously businesses are here to make money. So they're going to look at that piece as one, but they're also going to look at the people and the planet side. So how are we being sustainable? How are we ensuring that we're being good in our practices? We're not harming the environment, that sort of thing. The people side is all around the social side of the organization. How are they contributing to society? How are they benefiting society and so on and so forth? So that triple bottom line is really focused holistically on the outputs of that business. Now, asset management helps dramatically with that for a wide range of reasons. Obviously, if our equipment is maintained, running well, we're going to reduce our costs to produce and we're going to improve profit. But at the same time, if we're maintaining our equipment correctly, we're going to have an impact on the planet. We're going to consume less energy, consume less resources, pollute less, and so on and so forth. And then as a result of that, we can then invest in doing things to help people in the social side of things. So whether we support charities or nonprofits or various other things, it allows the organizations to do that as well. Do you find in those industries, when we talk about nonprofits or really community centric type, I'm going to call them industries, is unique when compared to for-profit industries? Or is this really about, from both spaces, really should look at this holistic approach as a way to be connected to and deliver value for their community, not just in the form of money, but just in this form of humanity and maybe giving back to Mother Earth? I think it's, I think it's both. I think it is uh, for-profit and non-profit organizations. You know, for-profit organizations, while they may not do directly some of those social aspects, they may partner with nonprofits that are doing certain things. They may do joint ventures with other organizations to improve social, economic issues within the organization. And the asset management piece as well, I have seen deployed from both sides, whether it's for-profit businesses or for nonprofit businesses, or you actually see a lot of that asset management, the newer processes, the newer techniques, those types of things being used in government entities, cities municipalities, school boards, because they're looking for ways to reduce costs for infrastructure, reduce energy footprints, those sorts of things. And then they can turn, take in turn, reinvest that back into better education, better infrastructure, more parks and playgrounds. If you're a municipality, those types. I really appreciate that response because I think that kind of brings it full circle to what that really means. It's not limited to the nonprofits. It's not limited to the for-profits. It's a direction that everyone can start heading in. I wanted to ask a different question that leans a bit more on your overall expertise, experience, the things you've learned, the things you've seen. Can you tell me where and when you first learned the term bottleneck and what that means to you? Bottleneck. So that probably would have been probably would have been when I was a maintenance electrician. That particular organization where I started as a maintenance electrician, 
they had two lines that produced uh, a product that fed into a single line. Now that single line, any part of that, that system went down, the entire plant went down. So that's where I started hearing about the bottlenecks. And as we started to understand and try and dive a bit deeper into, you know, what were the constraints? What were the issues within that organization? We came to realize that, yeah, we're feeding these two lines into the one, but it, that necessarily wasn't the bottleneck. There were other things beyond that that was actually bottlenecking the facility. The reason it's such an important concept to me to understand and talk about for those listening is it's a term that a lot of us have been exposed to. We've learned it at different times, but you used one really important word when you were describing it and you mentioned the constraints. My idea behind bottlenecks was really about finding them breaking those constraints in the maintenance and production processes. It applies in many different areas. So there are bad, disruptive, and costly things happening, and we simply need to find, identify, and break those bottlenecks quickly to open things up, or we need to push them down line. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I'm glad that you said processes because in a lot of organizations, it might not be a machinery bottleneck. It might be a people bottleneck or a system bottleneck. And when I say system, it might be the maintenance system or the spare parts system or something of that nature. It's not just equipment and plant and asset related. It, the systems we use to run our business. The next thing I wanted to talk about is I've always thought asset and preventive maintenance management is a goldmine for organizations to drive ROI because I think there's money hiding in their assets. Is that a fair statement? And if so, where do we look for that hidden money? So it's to build on what we've been talking about. I agree. The preventative maintenance side, maintaining our assets can be a huge goldmine to organizations if it's done correctly. And I think that's the key. I've worked with organizations who may not have had a PM program in place. They may not have taken maintenance very seriously. And they swing so far in the other direction that they're actually worse off. They're taking more planned downtime. They're spending a tremendous amount of money trying to do things to preserve the assets, but they're overdoing it to the extent that it's detrimental overall to the business. So is that because, in your opinion or experience, they really get into that work and that work becomes work just for the purpose of working, if that makes any sense, and they're losing sight of how they could really mitigate those things and do it properly is the problem with execution. It depends. Um, I've worked with some organizations where, you know, they're focused exclusively on that work. They're in their little silo. That's what they're doing. They're not looking at the bigger picture for the business, but there's also another piece to it. I think where there's an understanding of equipment and how it fails. And I say that because there was a study done in the late sixties, early seventies by two gentlemen, Nolan and Heap, and they analyzed failures on aircraft. You know, how, do the, how are these components failing? Were they wearing out? Were they failing when they're f newly installed? Were they random failures? And you know, they came up with six different ways equipment fails. What percentage typically they found in the aircraft that they were looking at for different, fa different failure modes. Most people that are in maintenance may not even know about that. And that forms the foundation of how all modern maintenance programs are developed. Can you elaborate just a touch and give us something to compare and contrast? Just a real-time example? 
in terms of the different ways equipment fails? Certainly that, but when it comes to the approach, the modern approach, as compared to the, what I'll call old school approach, if that's a fair approach that exists. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been three now moving into a fourth, big different mindset shifts from how we maintain equipment. Start, go back to the beginning. We fixed it when it broke. That was it. You know, you envision the old Maytag repairman waiting around for the phone call. Progressed to the next evolution. They moved into the preventative maintenance side where everything has a defined life. We're going to change it just before that defined life expires. So we prevent future failures. Traditional preventative maintenance. Repair, refurbish, replace. From there, then came the study. From there, they realized that not everything fails with age. In fact, only 11% of failures in that, in that study could be traced to being age-related, meaning it wore out, it was fatigued, something of that nature. Only 11%. That moved us into the next evolution where we're moving to condition-based maintenance. There are certain things we're going to change based on age because we, we have hard data that we know these will start to fail at this point or the probability of failure will increase dramatically at this point. For the rest of the stuff, we got to take a different approach. That's where we start to see predictive maintenance come in, where we're monitoring the condition of the asset, whether it's through process parameters, physical changes to it, and so on and so forth. And when we see those indications, then we're going to perform the repair or replacement. At the same time, we want to make sure we focus on improving installation. Infant mortality or early life failures is one of the biggest contributing factors to equipment failures in that study, over 68%. So there's got to be a focus, not just on monitoring, but how do we install it? How do we specify it? How do we commission it and test it? So that was that third evolution. Now, the new, the latest one that we're seeing is it has a couple different terms, but we're moving into prescriptive maintenance. And that's really taking all the sensor data, you know, the IIoT process data, SCADA data, all these different things, putting them into you know, a machine learning model. And from there, it's outputting what maintenance we should be doing when. And that, I think, is that next step. I agree. Throughout my years in the CMMS industry, one of the big things that we were seeing in, I would say, more so in the last decade, and it's really picked up some steam in the last five years, and kind of like what you were saying with the sensor monitoring and this thing you brought up about prescriptive maintenance, I think is really interesting because it sounds to me like that's a well-informed process of maintenance. Yes. And I would, I would build on it one thing, one additional level is as these models get further refined, they're going to better predict when we or prescribe when we need to do these things. So we may know current you know, old school method, every 3000 miles, we change the oil. Modern methods, you know, maybe we extend that interval. There might be a few sensors within the car that tells us when we need to change our oil now. Prescriptive is going to take it one step further, and it's going to analyze how you drive, how far you drive, environmental conditions, all these other factors to determine when should we change our oil based on exactly how we're operating that vehicle. But it's not going to tell us when it's due. It's going to forecast in three weeks, you need to go do this. So it's still a planned event where we can prepare for it. We can organize it. That's what I think the prescriptive is. It's extremely comprehensive. Whereas previous iterations of how we approach preventive maintenance. I was going to say one of the challenges with making that, that progression though, through those various stages is 
I find in a lot of organizations is an over-reliance on that technology. Felt that way as well. So it's, it feels like a very natural progression the way we're leveraging technology and we're actually trying to learn and then learn more about what we learned and learn better ways to implement it to mitigate all of these risks and try to find, crack, and break those bottlenecks. Sometimes that may be the case, but typically what I find is as you try to progress through these various phases of maintenance, if you will, you have to put in different foundational elements. I'll give you a good example that I see all the time. Organizations will go buy all these vibration and temperature sensors. They'll set them up. They'll feed into the CMMS and the CMMS will tell you when this thing is starting to vibrate, when this thing is starting to get hot, whatever it may be. The individual in charge of that system is seeing these warnings but they don't have a good process to scope the repair, plan the repair, order the parts, or get the parts out of the storm, coordinate with operations to actually take that asset down and perform the repair before it fails. So as a result, we put a sensor in that tells us, I'm failing, I'm getting worse, I'm getting really bad, oh, I failed, and we didn't do anything about it. And I see that over and over and over because those other elements that are required, setting up your asset list in the CMMS, Managing work orders, managing spares, coordinating with operations. Those things aren't in place People yet. have a behavioral tendency to hit it and forget it, get it all set up, let it run, and then they stop really staying engaged with it. Something like that? Yes, exactly. Yes, there's a methodology. All right. Um, at a high level, first, you got to understand what your assets are. So you got to get your asset list together. From there, you have to prioritize those assets. Not all of those assets are as important as the others. The reason why that, that's important is it goes back to that Pareto principle. We need to invest the time in the very critical assets, the things that will cause productivity, quality, safety issues, environmental issues, over those that we have workarounds in place. From there, then we use a repeatable method to define what maintenance we're going to do. So a lot of organizations will leverage reliability-centered maintenance or RCM. Others will leverage traditional failure mode effect analysis or failure mode effect criticality analysis to identify the risks specific to that asset and to decide what are we going to do about it. Then there, we got to monitor the success of that program. If we're continuing to have failures on that asset after we've gone through all those steps, we got to go back and revise and update. The PM program is a living, breathing program. It should be updated based on new failures, new trends. Do we change the operating context of how we use that asset? The answer is yes. We may need to look at changing frequencies or tasks. So it's an evergreen process. And then on top of all that, you have to have the supporting systems in place. I can have the best PM program in the world that tells me exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it, all those things. But if I can't coordinate my people to be there at the right time, we're not going to do it. If they find things, but we can't coordinate the repair, the spare parts and the outage with the operations before it's before we start it back up, doesn't do me any good because it's still going to fail. Interesting. It reminds me immediately as you described it that way of a concept from project management called full kidding or something to that effect. I'm not, it's not exactly the exact same thing, but it reminds me of just not having the things in place that are ready for that extra layer of mitigation, being able to actually intervene. 
I couldn't have possibly come up with that myself. So that's why it's so important that you're here today. And I, I think everybody's going to learn a lot of really, really great things or reaffirm some things that they've already heard. They might already be consuming your podcast and learning these methodologies. I'm curious, what is your best tip for someone new to setting up a proper asset and PM process within their organization? Is there a single thing or top three things that you would suggest that they start with to get this going? There's a couple of different ways to go about it. Some organizations, they learn about RCM or PM optimization, and they want to do that on everything. They get overwhelmed, they get bogged down, they don't generate the results they were expecting and they abandon it. So when you're looking at deploying something, whether it's fixing PMs, fixing your spare parts, doing some more planning and scheduling, start small, do a pilot, validate your new processes, prove that they work. If something's not working, make the adjustments now. And then once we have that moving forward, then you can start rolling out to larger parts of the facility or plant. So that's one piece is, you know, start with a pilot, then grow it. You're not going to conquer the entire facility or site or organization in a day. That typical journey from reactive to proactive is about three to five years, sometimes even more depending on resourcing. It's a long, slow process. Is there, in these scenarios where you're working with clients and making these things happen, is there a particular area where you see resistance and organizations not being able to implement these things properly? Is there any particular things you encounter that causes hesitancy or that makes it really challenging for them to integrate or implement such a process or processes. Can you share anything about that? The other thing that we typically see is the change management side, the people side. They don't understand why we're making changes, how we're making these changes, what these changes or how these changes are going to impact them. They're going to be resistant. The biggest challenge is not the technical side of how to set up an asset hierarchy, how to plan work orders, how do I do an FMEA. That's technical stuff. That stuff can be trained. It can be learned easily. It's not difficult. The biggest challenge is, is the change management side and the people side of things. That's the biggest challenge of this whole thing of making that evolution in that journey. Absolutely. It's the one thing that I've seen time and again since 2002 where... The idea, the concept, what we're going to get is really important and we're ready to go when we start working on this and we try to do everything right away. And then when you talk about that change management part, when implementing a CMMS solution for, let's say, for example, a large property management company, we will find that the people down line are resistant to the change because nobody helped them understand why that was happening. So why is a very, very important question. And we then found once we worked with them and helped them understand the why, because we had that authorization from the client, two weeks later, we would get a phone call from the head of that particular maintenance team. And they would say, wow, this makes sense now. And we're not sure how we were doing what we were doing without this. Although that might be looked at as an accolade for the solution itself. What it was actually was they embraced a behavioral change and they started to understand that collecting, gathering, tracking, and monitoring all these things in their CMMS system were driving value for the organization as a whole. But the secret to the change management that happened there, in my observation, was 
that it started to make a positive impact in their day-to-day. They were getting out of work on time, spending time with family or whatever it was. But in the beginning, they didn't see it that way. In the beginning, they saw it as disruptive to what they were already settled into. It's really interesting. Do you, do you think that kind of makes sense with what you said and me telling that story? 100%. If we cannot articulate to the check the technicians why they have to input work orders, why they have to track hours, if you get a little more advanced, why they got to put in failure codes and stuff like that, and they you can't articulate the benefit to them and how this is going to help them, they're not going to adopt it. They're going to feel like something's being pushed on. The one thing that I've always used when we look at deploying any sort of improvement in organizations is I'm a big fan of the ad car model. It's developed by Jeffrey Hyatt from ProSci. So it helps you walk people through these types of changes. Now, ADCAR is an acronym, stands for Awareness, Desire, Knowledge, Ability, Reinforcement. And he talks about how you have to bring them through that journey in that order. So first, you got to create awareness of what this change is, why we're making this change as an organization, and so on and so forth. For desire, to your point, you have to show them and explain to them why this is beneficial to them. If you go to large Fortune 500 companies and you tell the mechanic at one of the plants on the floor, this is going to save the company you know, $200 million, do they really care? No, they don't. They, they're worried about how does it make their day easier. So you've got to be able to craft that message specific to the individual's that are going to be impacted by it. So for a mechanic, it might be less breakdown phone call, less breakdown calls. It could be your work is going to be here, ready to go with parts when you show up in a day, and you're going to know what your schedule is for the day. You know, you got to talk to those specific things. From there, we're moving to knowledge. And that's where now that they have some awareness and they have a desire to make the change, now we can actually provide some training and get them up to speed. Because if they don't have a desire, I can put people in classes all day long and they're not going to learn a thing. Once they have that knowledge, we've got to give them the ability to use it. If we train people, but then don't let them go do it, we're going back to square one. And lastly, R is reinforcement. And that's how do we reinforce these behaviors moving forward? Sometimes it's incentives, could be KPIs, could be a whole bunch of things, like even good job in thanking people. That goes a huge way to making these changes successful. I really like that overall concept, and I'm going to go research it later because I think I think an entire episode could be dedicated just to that. Not because we're talking about CMMS necessarily, but what you're talking about there is something that represents a process. It reminds me a lot of project execution maturity and how that actually unfolds. You mentioned earlier that to really implement a proper preventive maintenance program, you're probably going to spend three to five years. And a lot of organizations, for many different reasons, myriad reasons, they have resistance to that because they don't have patience. Maybe they're beholden to different things as far as their organizational goals. I'm talking about money. I really want to go explore that later. We might want to consider doing an episode later on something like that. But I think this is a lot of information that's going to be helpful to the audience. I think it's been a great conversation. What I'd like to do, James, is talk a little bit about Rooted in Reliability, the plant performance podcast for people to learn more about asset reliability. How can people get in touch with you to connect or collaborate? Yeah, absolutely. So Rooted in Reliability, it's a weekly podcast 
We're over 300 episodes now. Um, you can find that iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all over the place. Like I said, it's a weekly show. It's generally not myself. I bring in guests from all kinds of different organizations, companies, perspectives, because what I find is I may explain something one way. Someone else may explain the concept the same, but they explain it in different terms and language and it'll connect with different people. So there's a lot of episodes on, for example, planning and scheduling with multiple different people. We're all going in the same direction. We're just explaining a little bit differently. So it gives insights to how these things happen from a wide range of perspectives. In addition to that, if you want to get a hold of me, LinkedIn is probably the easiest. You can just put in James Kovacevic. You can get a hold of me there. You can ask questions. You can message me. If you're looking for templates, examples, anything like that, let me know. I'll be more than happy to share those with you. Yeah, chat about the problems you guys are having. One last question. Are you still focused on and available for consulting if somebody needs that kind of help? It would depend on scope and size and so on and so forth. If not, I have a ton of industry partners that if it's this particular problem or a particular area, I'll be able to refer you to who I think is the best one to support. There you have it, folks. Get in touch with James if you need his help or want to collaborate. Definitely check out his podcast. You're going to learn a lot of things and you're not just going to learn them from him. You're going to learn from the experts that he brings in. So you'll get those multiple perspectives. You'll get people that are explaining these things in different ways that will resonate with you. We'll talk to you on our next CMMS radio episode. Again, James, thank you so much for the time today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it as well. And hopefully uh, your audience found some value in it. I think so. I think so. Really appreciate it. Was this episode helpful? Please let us know and follow CMMS Radio on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love to get suggestions, stories, please leave the names out, and questions from you. So visit cmmsradio.com and use the What's On Your Mind link to get that over to us. We'll try to incorporate it into our future episodes. Thanks again for listening to CMMS Radio. We'll catch up next time.